What's good, fam? It's your man, Norm, here. Are you following us on social media yet? If not, you may find us on all of the major social platforms such as Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn. Find us at New Numa. That's P-N-E-U-P-N-E-U-M-A. From there, you may find myself and Justin and follow our personal accounts also. As you know, feedback helps everyone grow and we need your feedback. If you want to join our team, have suggestions on how we may improve, if you want to be interviewed by us, or if you have someone you would like for us to interview, please email us at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you would like to see our podcast grow to that next level, you may also give financially to the cause whenever you feel like it by going to our anchor.fm page, clicking on the button that says support this podcast. We will greatly appreciate you sowing into the vision to help us spread the good news about the truth of God's kingdom worldwide. Thanks for your support and keep it locked right here. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. And, uh, you know, finally, after all these years of being Facebook friends, we get a chance to finally talk on the phone. Finally! <laughs> I was wondering if it was ever going to happen. I know, right? Because, uh, man, I don't know. It's just so many things come up. You know, you plan to do something and then all kinds of things get in the way. But then, I don't know, I was just, you know... Recently, I come to the conclusion that even though I thought there was a lot of things that I should have already done by now, that um, certain things that started happening um, as a result of this year coming in as far as like, you know, a new season and everything, then all of a sudden I started to see that things that I thought I was supposed to do, they, they happened when they were supposed to happen, meaning they happen now instead of a year ago or so like that, you know? So that was a really good thing to see. So um, so I guess that's in saying that, I'm saying this is a perfect time that we finally were able to connect. Absolutely. So, Barbara, I just want you to kind of take us back to um, a little bit over, you know, a little bit about yourself, like who you are, um, tell us about what you're doing, things of that nature. Hi. Well, um, I guess simply in a nutshell, I'm just a person that loves God and loves people and have had the opportunity of starting a ministry that makes that possible to um, love and reach more people. And that's back to basics. Mm-hmm. And the way it started off was um, not planned. Um, not thought out, not foreseen. It just happened. And it was simply from the night that I got real with God and was talking to him. And I happened to be drinking and smoking that night. And um, just throughout the conversation with him, I had told him I wanted him to change my heart, my soul, my mind, my eyes, because I could see and justify anything and everything. And let's just say he did. The next day, I pretty much scared my neighbors and my friends and my family. And was at a point where I was so hungry for the Bible, I couldn't get enough for it. 
I was taking flowers to random neighbors, which ended up like, I'll never forget one. I had my son run up the flowers to her house and she's like, Oh, your mom knew it was my birthday. <laughs> and my son's like, No, she doesn't. And she's like, Oh, yes, she did. And I'm thinking, No, I didn't, but God knew that. Uh-huh. You know? And Thursday and stuff like that. And I met this homeless man. I'd actually driven by him when I was at work and told God, If I see him again, I'll help him. And then I saw him again later on and I said, Well, I don't have any money with me right now, but if I see him again, I'll help him. And then about five hours later, I see him probably about 10 miles away. And I was like, okay, fine, you know. So I pulled over and I went and talked to him. His name was Lawrence. He had the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen in my life. Uh, shared the gospel with him, bought him a cheeseburger, hung out with him. And then I started hanging out with him under the bridge, you know, every day. And decided that I wanted to help him. And at that time, I was working for an opposition. And I also worked at um, a place that was a um a bar and grill and so i was telling some people about the guy that i'd met and all of that and this man gives me a check and so i'm thinking you know you know twenty dollars fifty dollars something like that and it ended up being 500 and Mm. so i'm thinking wow i'm gonna change this guy's life right and so i have all these high hopes and plans i'm gonna you know buy him new clothes put him in a hotel get him cleaned up give him a place five hundred dollars to me was like a million and um, I went to look for him, and I could never find him. But looking for him, I met Patty and Eddie and Angel and Stretch and all these other homeless people. And so the Lord really used him to open up my eyes to all these people that were around me, literally around me that I had never seen. And then during that same time, was also taking a bunch of kids in the neighborhood that were on a lot of drugs and stuff like that to church. And, um, and a friend also asked me to come to an emergency shelter for kids that were in CPS. And to do a Bible study with them. And so I went and started doing that. And then finally, I was there so much. The um, owners were like, Barbara, you're here more than our staff is. You need to get trained. You need to get certified. You need to do everything that they do. So I went ahead and did that. And found out very quickly that the kids, once they get in CPS or juvenile um, areas, that by the time they're 18, they've lived in five to 35 different places. So that means they move around a whole lot. And God has just been really awesome that as we've worked on building relationships with all these different places. So pretty much any place one of the kids get moved to, it's only a matter of time before we're there. So we are able to be the one and only consistent thing that they have throughout their whole childhood. Wow. So is this like um, CPS is Child Protective Services, right? Yes. Yes. So are they like putting kids in foster homes? Is that why they're moving around? Well, it's not foster homes. The kids, I mean, we've had, like, maybe 10 kids out of the thousands that are in foster homes. But the, the group that um, I have a special heart for and the one that the Lord's really given us is the ones that don't typically get fostered. And um, they tend to be a little bit, get in trouble a little bit more than... Okay, so they get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I was watching cops with one of my friends the other night, and everything he'd be like, yeah, well, they deserve that, they deserve that. And I'm like, man, I'm seeing it so different than what you're seeing, because I know what these people have been through getting to that point. You know, you don't just wake up one day and go, okay, I'm going to rob a store, you know? Um, So our goal is to try to reach them before they're actually robbing those stores. And, like, right now we're doing a man-up camp, and 
um, it's basically three weeks of men teaching boys how to be men. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that had started was the Lord made it really clear to me that I had messed up with my son. He didn't have a dad. And so I always was trying to avoid Father's Day. And what he ended up showing me was that I was teaching him and the other boys to um, run from reality. The reality is, hey, you know what? It sucks, but your dad is not there either because he's a loser, because he's on drugs, because he's dead, he's in prison, or we don't know who he is. But pretending that that doesn't exist is not doing anybody any favors. And then I heard a message at church where our pastor had said that every man needs to be affirmed by another man at some point in their life. And so that's when we started doing the men's dinner. And we get them suits and ties, and then we have, you know, godly men come and hang out with the boys in steak because guys eat meat, right? Well, now it's a three-week camp where it's men teaching the boys how to change the oil, how to change the tire. Uh, we did a boot camp the other day where they're actually working out, learning about body, spirit, and soul. Um, and it's all men teaching. And, you know, I can be an aunt, I can be a sister, I can be their mom, but I can't teach a boy how to be a man. So, same thing, whereas if I were to tell, compliment one of the boys, it's going to be completely different coming from me than it would be from you. And so, right now, we're trying to collect all the suits and ties because some of our kids are like eight years old and some of them are 17. We're having a big, beautiful, elegant, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous steak dinner at a resort. They get their suits and ties. They look sharp. They get to get their pictures taken that night and take them with them. Most of these kids will never go to a prom or a homecoming or anything like that, but they will have these pictures. And then the weeks of the camp leading up to that, teaching them all different skills, meeting doctors and lawyers and, you know, hair hairstylists, barbers, business owners, anything that you can think of. Wow. Sorry, I get excited. That is that's a lot to be excited about. So I want to go back now. Let's go back okay. to how you came up. Um, we always get into the story of an individual because, you know, it tells a lot about them. And it also gives the audience a feel for, you know, things that you've overcome and stuff like that to get to where you are today. So what was it like from uh, from birth to let's say, your early, early teens. What was it like for you? What was life like? Um, For a lot of reasons, I don't go into a lot of that yet. But I can say that, like, my grandma, uh, Mimi, and my poppy, I would consider were my lifeline in full um, Christ. And because they just really taught me how to have fun and enjoy life. Um, I didn't do really well in school. I was pretty much an outcast. I got made fun of a lot because of the way I looked. Um, what is that? What do you mean, the way you look like being a- Well, first of all, when we were in Corpus, and this was interesting, but um, I remember, I can still remember the day I found out I was white. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to forget that. We had gotten our school pictures back. And somebody was talking about the two kids in the front that were glowing. And it was, you know, it was a Hispanic school, but my neighbor and I, we were the only two white kids there. And I can remember that clear as day. I can't even remember who said it, but I can remember looking at the picture and going, wow, I am different. Like, I had no idea, you know? 
Mm. And, and, like, it's kind of interesting, too, because, like, a lot of the kids now, I'll see, like, this one little girl, I mean, it's, it's sad and it's funny at the same time, but she was telling me some, some bad things about white people the other, you know, a couple of months back. And I remember just sitting there, she was telling me that, going, you know what, this little girl has no idea I'm white. She has no idea, and she loves me to pieces, you know? <laughs> she's at one of our apartments. But she's been told by other people bad things about white people. And I'll just, I'll never forget that. Well, she doesn't even know I'm white. <laughs> 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 she doesn't know she loves me. But wow. so that was at that school. And then we moved to Houston. And we were in a more well-to-do um, area, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. but weren't able to live as the people that were doing well, which for me, it seems like it would have been easier to be in a poor neighborhood than to be in a rich neighborhood if you can't keep up. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. So I got made fun of because of my clothes, about being too skinny, um, mostly the way I look, being very socially awkward. Um, so I, I believe that that's why I started doing drugs and partying at a very young age. Like, I would say by the time I was 13, there wasn't really anything I hadn't done. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Except for needles. I never touched needles because I can't even get my blood taken without, like, passing out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> I know you said you moved to Houston. Where were you from originally? Corpus Christi. Okay, Corpus Christi. All right. Like, earlier I heard you say Corpus, and I'm like, oh, yeah. that. I figured that's what you were trying to say, but that must be the short way that they say it when you're from there. <laughs> <laughs> like in Baltimore, we say be more, you know. Ah. Yeah, so that's how a lot of people say it on the East Coast, at least from, you know, from Virginia up. They pretty much know, call it be more. So, okay. um, yeah, I but anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> when you came down to your um obviously you already said you know by the way let me just tell you i can identify with you on the being made fun of part you know when i was a kid uh between the ages of pretty much i would say 10 to um the time i got into the 11th grade um i was made fun of for being intelligent and um really oh Yeah. yeah Yeah. I was gonna say I I know a lot of men that actually suffer from that, and it's really strange. Yeah, so it was crazy because the way uh-huh. that it the way yeah. that it basically came about was like, you know, when I was in school, um, honestly, up until probably the tenth grade, it wasn't really um, hard for me. I pretty much breezed through school, and I didn't have. I didn't really have to study. Like I would, my goal every day was to go home with no books. So I would be doing the homework from a previous class in the class that I was in, and that would go on all day until I got to the end. And oh my! So, yeah, and then I yeah, was that's just complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's how it was for me, and I, you know, I remember being in class and. You know, uh, whatever the teacher, I don't know if they did this everywhere or if it was just where I was going to school, but I remember when the teacher would ask a question, like students would raise their hand, but a lot of them, you know, depending on who they were, 
they might be saying, ooh, 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 I know, I know. You know, and um, I did that a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. So I was, like, always having the answer, the correct answer. Well, a lot of times I had the correct answer when the teacher would ask. And so um, there was this one particular female. It was a girl that started this, by the way. And she started calling me Norman the Nerd. And I was like, you know, and it just started kind of like spreading. And, you know, back then and somewhat even now, depending on what kind of school you go to, that's a negative terminology. It's, it, yeah. it has a negative connotation. Uh-huh. But, you know, when I look back on it, that was like one of the biggest compliments I could have received. You know, Absolutely. What is the job that, or what is that um, saying? What do you call a nerd when you get out of high school? Um, I can't remember what they call that. Boss. Boss. Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, those people you're making fun of laughing at because they're so smart, you're going to be answering to them for your paycheck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, we would, when we would have questions in school, I always tried to like make myself invisible mm. and um, I, I could not speak in front of a class to save my life. I took so many zeros all the way through because I was so, so shocked. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Mm. I could not do it. So, yeah, so, it was complete opposite of you. Yeah, so I just, I'm curious though. Like you were saying that you didn't realize you were white until that certain point in time. But what was it about your um, being around the other kids that made you not realize that like I don't know like was, was it that you were too young to know I guess notice differences in colors or um, I don't know I sometimes I wonder about that and wonder if God just makes everybody differently but like I've even had my kids say mom we're so glad that we were raised by you because we never even knew a difference between different races of people until all this stuff started coming out in society like now that they're big yeah. And because to me, people are people. Yeah. And um, and obviously, it was like that when I was a kid. I really had no idea that I was anything different than anybody else until it was pointed out to me. So how many kids do you have? Um, I have two kids by birth, one stepson, and then thousands of other kids. Yeah. So I noticed, like, you're, aren't your kids, or well, at least one of them, uh, biracial? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, but I have a lot of kids that I consider my kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so we going... That's confusing to people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen in pictures with some, um, like there's this one young man, he looked like he was probably mixed. Um, and I saw you call him your son, but... Yeah, it's probably could, Roger. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as far as like, what's that? I said I claim them one hundred percent as mine. Oh, okay. Now I can still want to ask. Remember when I asked God for permission to be the spiritual mom of all the kids He gave me? And mm. you know, Tamika, like the the girl that I'm meeting tonight for dinner and stuff. I mean, she's black, but I'm white, and I was like, yeah, it's my kids. Don't we look alike? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you obviously have a unique. Um, way of looking at things and the upbringing with that. And so as far as when you were like around the age of 13 and then I guess from that point until you graduated high school, um, 
were you just becoming more and more like involved in things that weren't good for you and just kind of like going on a downward spiral? Oh, yes. Um, I was, um, yeah, I mean, I was a smoker, gross. Um, I drank, I did drugs, I didn't like school. Um, I didn't actually graduate because I left school. I moved out at 17. And, um, you know, I got to, I got to get, I, I like to say that I got to go through a lot of different things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, at 17, I had moved out. I had my Buick Regal and I got a job bartending and, um, I started taking in homeless people off the streets, which sounds so odd, but I guess God already had who I was in me, but I was just kind of lost. Okay. Not kind of lost, really lost. But I remember this one guy that I took in, everybody called him Goofus. And he was a skinny white guy with eyeglasses that were like Coke bottles. Mm-hmm. And I remember him telling me, if you'll just, and everybody called me Stevie because I love Stevie Nicks and I used to dress like her and all of that. I guess I still do. But anyway, um, so he was like, if you'll let me stay with you, all I need is rice and sugar and milk. That's it. And this man literally lived on rice, sugar, and milk. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very interesting time. It was a very dangerous time. I got in some really bad situations. I was with some really abusive people, got beat up a lot by the guys. Um, had one that actually ended up breaking my neck. Um, wow. We had, yeah, I had gotten sober. I had quit drinking and everything, but I was still bartending, and I was still 17. So much happened in that one year. It's just it's amazing. But he had come to pick me up from work, and he was in my car. And when he was backing up, he ran over the curb, and I kind of, like, hit his shoulder, like, you know, you just hit the curb. Well, he just went off on me and went crazy at that point and then started driving to his parents' house. And I'll always remember when we pulled up, he was just irate. I mean, he was grabbing my hair, and I was like 90 pounds then. And I know you know I'm a small person, but I was yeah. he was small then. Yeah. And, I mean, he's just hitting me and kicking me, and, you know, we had already gotten out of the car, and I remember all the lights went on in the neighborhood. And so I'm thinking the entire time, somebody's going to come out. Somebody is going to help me. And nobody came out. All the lights on the front porch went on, but no one did anything. And I can remember him just kicking and hitting and punching and dragging me by my hair. And I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And there was nothing I could do. I did try to fight because I was a pistol, but I didn't really get And then I remember him throwing me back in the car. We got on the freeway and he had to turn right to go to my house or keep going straight. And all of a sudden he pulls over. He's like, man, I'm effed up. I need you to drive. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. So... We switch seats, and my first thought is, there's no way I'm going home. I mean, there's no way. So I kept going straight. Well, I saw a gas station. I rolled up on the gas station, jumped out of the car, and I'm yelling for help. And there was a security guard and a lady working there. And Eric, the guy, starts yelling, oh, she's on drugs. She's on this, this, and that. And grabs me. And I'm holding on to, like, one of those poles, you know, you see the gas station. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, wrapped around that. And he grabs me and throws me in the car. And then just starts yelling and cussing, telling me God wants us to die and speeding down the freeway as fast as he can from one side to the other and then flipped us off an overpass. Wow. And, um, and which, you know, the good thing is, well, and I jumped, but as soon as we went up in the air, I jumped down on the floorboard and covered my head. 
Um, it was just a, a natural response, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he did not get a trash on him. He did not get a ticket. <laughs> I get anything. <laughs> I went I went to Gentile Hospital, my car was trashed and the the sad thing is it's a good thing now. The sad thing is when I left there, I left with him. And so a lot of times when I'm working with these girls that are in abusive situations or whatever, I can honestly say, hey, you know what? I've been there and I've made some really stupid decisions. So if you're going to go back to him, that's your choice. You're 18 years old, but do not put any of us in danger by doing that. Let us know where you want to go and we'll take you there, but do not have them come to whatever house we have them at or hotel or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I went back with him for probably about three months with my big old neck brace on. And then I can remember one day I just saying, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. So I started bartending again. And with my neck brace and everything, was able to save up the money and um, get my own place. And yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a lot, especially in one year. So basically, having gone through all these different situations, it gave you a heart for those that are currently dealing with that. And it was also, in a way, preparing you to deal with them and um, and to know, you know, how to deal with those different situations that find themselves in. So, right, and to know that you don't have to stay there. And, you know, and it didn't stay that way. I mean, I ended up um, getting married. That was a really short marriage. And then... Um, what was it? I had my son. His, his father never showed up. Um, I remember waiting at the hospital thinking he was going to come. I remember every year thinking, okay, this is the year he's going to do the right thing. This is the year because I'm one of those people. I just have a really hard time believing that people don't have good enough. Like I can't, I can't grasp it. I know that some people just don't, but I still can't grasp it. And so I just really can't believe in every year that he would come back and do the right thing. And he never did, which was heartbreaking for my son. Um, and I remembered I had, it was a very short marriage, but I got married again. I have really bad choices on these. And um, the person who I was marrying, the night we got married, he had quit his job and had got a house without letting me know where it was. So I had my son and my daughter and showed me the new house. Two days later, somebody came over. I found out that he was making money on the side selling things that he shouldn't have. And doing all kinds of stuff. And so within, which I don't really usually talk about that marriage because it was only, I think, four weeks. Mm -hmm. So I took my two kids and went and lived in one of those hotels that you stay in you know, about a week until I was able to save up enough money to get us a house to rent and stuff like that. So again, when I'm dealing with all these girls that are like, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. I have kids. I'm like, hey, you know what? I know it's hard because I was there, but it can be done. But you just you can't give up, and you have to you have to keep going. And then, um, and then I got saved probably about seven or eight years after that. And what was so interesting is that in the past I had always said, "Well, these all these bad things happened to me because I was doing wrong. I was drinking, I was partying, I was promiscuous. It was all because of me. And if I had not been doing wrong, I would not have been in any of these situations. Which there is some truth to that, but it's not completely true. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I agree with you. 
Well, I can actually remember um, one case. It was when I was working somewhere, and I was only 17, and the manager, anyway, he did stuff that he shouldn't have done. And um, I remember thinking, you know, well, if I wouldn't have been drinking and I wouldn't have been there, well, then I would have never been raped. Well, that is true. And so that's why I tried to tell the girls, hey, I'm not saying, you know, which some people get really mad and very um, aggressive about it, saying that you should never blame the woman. And I don't think telling a woman to be sober and to pay attention to her surroundings and who she's with is blaming her. Most people know we are living in what are called the last days. But most people do not know that the last days have been here since the time when the first apostles were alive. Jesus said that in the last days, false prophets would arise and show great signs and wonders to the point that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect. This tells me that we must be on guard and know what we are up against. If Jesus made this a priority to speak on that subject, it must be very important for us to know what our enemy is up to. And that is why I wrote my book. My name is Norman Brown and I am the author of Among the Wolves. The reason I wrote this book is because I was one of those people who was very close to a false prophet. And I witnessed firsthand the dealings of a false prophet for seven years of my life. After seven years of going through this stage of my walk with Christ, the Lord finally revealed to me what it was that was happening right under my nose. And it was on that day that I started down a road of recovery from hurt, betrayal, bitterness, anger at God, and unforgiveness toward the man whom I once called my spiritual father. Many people are dealing with the same church hurt that I went through, and it is tearing lives apart because many have discovered that their walk was wrapped up in a man and not in God. And now they are going through a process of healing from that pain they endured, from the abuse of their trust, their heart to serve and desire to expand the reach of God's kingdom. If you have experienced this type of hurt, if you have witnessed deception in the church, on TV, on YouTube, on podcasts, or on radio and see how it affects people, then this is a book that you should read. To get your free copy of my book, simply subscribe to the new Numa Godcast email list by emailing new.numa.podcast at gmail.com. Email us today for your free copy. God bless.